0: Stage sermon passage is found in Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Amen. You guys may be seated. As you take your seat, let's pray together. Our great God, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, who is your son, who is the Savior, who is our Lord. And in his name, we plead with you. Would you come to your people and minister your grace and mercy and peace and hope to us. Would you speak your word to us in such a way that we would believe? Would you be filled with faith? and We would be called children of God. Lord, help us to walk in the ways of your son, Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, it's great to be with you this morning. If you haven't done so already, please take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Here at Redeemer, uh, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and um, we're in chapter 23. And here's what's going on in chapter 23, is Jesus is strongly, verbally, outwardly, and directly rebuking the religious leaders of Israel for missing the point. And um, if the purpose of preaching is to drive home the point of what the Bible says, I didn't feel like it would be wise to just deliver the point once when Jesus delivers it seven times. So we're going to slow down a little bit, and we're going to go through these woe-to-you statements over the next few weeks. But they're all part of one message. They're all part of Jesus saying to the religious leaders, Of Israel, you had one job, and you failed to do it. You had one job, and you're failing miserably to do it. Here's the one job: prepare the people for the Son of God who's coming to redeem. And instead, they they got lost in all of the nuance and all of the power struggle and all of the other things that were going on and they missed Jesus, their Savior. So, lest I be guilty of what they are being given woe over, let's just cut straight to the point. The message of the church, the message of Christianity, the message of hope, the message of salvation, the message of peace, the reason that we're all here today is this Jesus Christ is the Lord. Which means, because that was like the most churchy statement ever, which means this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, lived, died, and rose again to bring. God's grace, mercy, peace, forgiveness, love, and salvation to his people. Our hope, it's Jesus. Our salvation, it's Jesus. Our way forward is following Jesus. Our deliverance comes from Jesus. Our, oh dear Lord, please help me, I don't know where to turn, is looking to Jesus. And what ultimately is going on in this passage is Jesus is looking at the scribes and the Pharisees and saying, you failed to see your Savior. And I'm just going to be quite honest, friends. These woe passages cut way, way, way too close to home. They all hurt a little bit. So we'll be delicate, but they hurt a little bit. Because here's what's going on. Ultimately, Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, you love the law. Good. You love Moses? Good. You want people to to walk in the ways of the words of Moses? Good. But you let all of that desire, even good desire, miss the Savior who Moses promised would come. So friends, what we take away from these woes I think is very simple. Learn to see Jesus and cling to him. Run to him. Follow him. So, if you didn't want to listen to me today, there you go. There it all is. You can go to lunch. You can chat. You might even be able to work your way through community group this week. Just with that. But I want to show you this from the passage because I think it's really vitally important. So, if you want to take notes this morning, our first note. Is understanding woe, understanding woe. So in this passage, the broader Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks seven woes over the scribes and the Pharisees. And I was talking to our youth pastor this morning. He goes, you should really make sure that people know you're not saying, whoa, man, like W-H-O-A, but whoa, stop. So he speaks seven woes. And they follow this formula, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for, and then he tells them why. So I think, I think it would be helpful for us to slow down and understand woe and hypocrites and what Jesus is saying and maybe what he's not saying so that we can understand these statements, Okay. So, understanding woe. There's a formula here. It plays out in all seven of these. We're going to look at two of them today. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You see that at the beginning of verse 13, the beginning of verse 15, the beginning of verse 16, the beginning of verse 23, 25, 27, 29. You see it moving all the way down. There are seven woes, and six of them begin with this exact formula. So, let's, let's pause and let's try to understand these. Woe. To speak woe, I mean, anybody used woe again, w o e, in conversational English this week? Okay, those of you who speak Spanish, conversational Spanish this week? No, okay. Um, I think that I think that covers us here at Redeemer on conversational languages. Okay, good. All right. So when Jesus speaks this woe, what what he is doing is he is pointing out something that is wrong and will have future consequences. So Jesus is pointing out something that is wrong and will have future consequences. So um, moms, have you ever said, just wait till dad gets home? Or was that just in my generation where that popped out? That would be a a southern vernacular of, whoa, right? Right? There's something wrong, and there will be future consequences. I'm not prescribing that method of parenting. I'm just trying to connect, okay? Now, in a biblical realm, these woes, they could be used in in two ways. Um, One, they could be spoken as just direct, straight condemnation, like a direct, straight condemnation of one's behavior. Um, And by the way, culturally, it would probably be good for us to remember that if condemnation is merited, that's actually not an unloving thing to point out. It might actually be the most loving thing you could do to point that out. So the woes could be straight out condemnation, or they could be a lament over a poor unbiblical reality. It could be a lament over poor unbiblical reality. Lament is a is a, a biblical term that we just completely miss. Lament is is the leaning into the hard and acknowledging the hard and naming it for what it is and turning all of our pain and sorrow and agony and brokenness to the Lord. And somewhere along the way, we all got confused that you had to make it happy before you could take it to the Lord, or you had to make it joyful worship before you could take it to the Lord. But, but lament teaches us that all you have to do is acknowledge that the Lord's the place for it to go and just take it to Him. So these woes could be out-and-out out condemnation, or they could be lament over the reality of where Israel is. I might argue that it's both. But I think if we skip ahead to the end of chapter 23, this might help us interpret this. So look at chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until I say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we'll study this passage later, but I think this helps us understand the the tone of voice in which Jesus is delivering these woes. Like, Like, they're deserved, Condemnation follows. But I think he's delivering them from this posture of lament over the reality. Like I came to redeem the people of God. By the way, I don't think he's surprised by this. But I came to redeem the people of God. And their leaders are turning them against their Savior. Their leaders are turning them against their Savior. So woe is identifying something that is broken and will have future consequences to draw attention to it. And guys, when, when woe is spoken, I, I'm not sure that shame and self-loathing is the response as much as repentance and turning to the Lord is the response. I do often fear that we have lost the ability to read the scriptures, understanding that God changes broken people, right? Like, like so if, if your takeaway from some meditation this week is that you're a really angry person and that bleeds out into everything that you do, like, I don't know that the Lord would want you just to be like, well, there it is. Shocks, but rather, Lord, you change angry people and move them, right? So, so these woes can be true and be uh, a bit of hope for how the Lord would stir and work. So, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Scribes and Pharisees were the religious leaders within Judaism with a heavy bent toward the law of Moses and wanting everyone to observe it. Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Guys, you you may feel like you're coming to an English class this morning, but we're about to spend a couple months under these words, woe to you, hypocrites, so it feels like we might should understand them. Let me just break something to you. You all use the word hypocrite wrongly. Every one of you use the word hypocrite wrongly. This is how we use the word hypocrite. You have a bent towards some inconsistency in your life. You're not perfectly consistent with what you say is true of you. That's called being human. And that's all of us. The word hypocrite rises up out of theater and drama. And and it conveys intentionality. Like it conveys you know you are A, but you're intentionally portraying yourself as B, right? Like, whoever played Julius Caesar knew he wasn't Julius Caesar. Or it might have been a she. Like, like, like the idea of hypocrite is, it was actually a compliment. It it means you play the role well. Except in the church, that wouldn't be a compliment. Because it would be, you play the faker well. So what Jesus is ultimately saying is that everyone with a shade of inconsistency probably shouldn't be called a hypocrite. Because hypocrisy undermines faith, right? Like so many people are like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because of the hypocrisy that's so deep within his church. Sadly, that's not an untrue statement. There is hypocrisy deep within the church of Jesus. Maybe one thing you could pray this week is, Lord, is there true hypocrisy in me? But to be a little bit inconsistent, to be less than perfect in your obedience to Jesus, that's not inherent hypocrisy, right? The fact that we're all still broken and still sinful and still imperfect reminds us that we need Jesus and not law-keeping driven into us. So Jesus is saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're wrong because you're intentionally misleading the people about who you are and who they are. Woe to you, hypocrites. So I hope that our little English lesson slash Greek lesson, has driven into us that it's no compliment to hear from Jesus, woe to you hypocrites, right? Woe to you hypocrites. Um, now, in making these statements against the scribes and the Pharisees, This is going to tie back to last week's sermon a little bit, but I feel the need to say it. Jesus is not making a statement against the law of Moses. He's not making a statement against what God had revealed through Moses. He's making a statement against leaders who are failing to do their one job, which was to point people to the God of Moses to the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who was sending a redeemer to restore and build the kingdom. So this pushes us one step further. How should we interpret these woes? So anyone here speak Hebrew fluently? Okay. Anyone here consider yourself an expert in The Old Testament, particularly the the law of Moses. Anyone here say it's your life mission to lead people to submit themselves fully to the law of Moses? Okay, so we're not the scribes and the Pharisees directly. So what do we do with these woes? And I'm here to say that there is a pattern in these woes that we need to learn from. There's a pattern in these woes that we need to learn from. If Jesus is concerned, lamenting, and speaking woe over these behaviors within Israel, would he not then speak concern and lament and woe over similar realities among his people now? So I think we need to hear them and receive them and walk in them. Okay. So that's going to push us then to our second point, which is wrestling with the first two woe statements. And the second point is, which leader? Because what ties these two woe statements together is missing the Messiah. It's missing the Savior. Now, if you're an astute reader you'll notice, or if you just can count to 15, you'll notice that verse 14 is missing in most of your English Bibles. If it's there, it's bracketed off. Now, I'm not gonna get lost in this deeply, but what that means, this happens numerous places throughout the New Testament. What that means for you is the earliest manuscripts that we found don't have that verse. But when the King James Bible was translated in 1611, Those manuscripts did. And so since all of the English world is interacting with that, it's either bracketed off or it's not there. But know this, this doesn't undermine the Scripture. Like, the scholars are admitting it. We've found older, more accurate manuscripts that don't have this verse. So we'll just admit to you that this verse is probably not Exactly in what Jesus said. So that's why I'm in the ESV. That's why there is no verse 14. You good NASB, give it to me literal and give it to me straight, folks. Y'all got a bracket, okay? Um, And you guys that are like, if you're not speaking in the King's English, you're forfeiting beauty, you have neither. But. I don't want to get lost in that. We can talk about it after the service, but I do think it's important that we point those things out. Like there's nothing. There's nothing to be hidden. The more manuscripts we find of the Bible, the more truthful the Bible becomes. The more affirmed it becomes. So we have two um, woes. Here's how they read. Number one, the first one, verse thirteen. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. What Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees is is basically this. You had one job. Your one job was to lead people to the, the later Moses, the Savior, the Messiah, who was to come because he will carry his people into the kingdom. And you not only fail to open that door for the people, but you block the door for the people where they themselves can't even go in. So let's just pretend there was one exit there and there was a fire. And not only did you fail to say to everyone, the door's back here, but you fell down in front of the door where no one else could get. So, what Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees is, You're so busy exerting your influence and your power and your interpretations of the scripture and trying to convince others to submit themselves to those things that you are obscuring the Messiah. You're missing the Messiah and you're preventing others from doing so as well. Recorded in John's Gospel, Jesus said, I am the door, which is not a very flattering thing to call yourself. I'm a door, except what he's saying is I'm the entry point into the kingdom of God, the blessing of God, the work of God, the people of God. I'm the way in. And Jesus is condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for missing the door, blocking the door, and preventing others to see that Jesus is the door. I think these fit together. Second, Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These are similar. You miss, you're not pointing in the right way. So therefore, when you expend energy and travel and time to build followers, you're not building followers of Yahweh. You're building followers of yourselves. You're not drawing people into the kingdom. You're drawing them into yourself. So Jesus is saying, hey, your work, that's good, but you're not drawing anyone to yourselves. So you put these two condemnations together. You shut the door to the kingdom. You make converts for hell. I think we could pull a thread that says what holds these two woe statements together is the scribes and the Pharisees were failing to see who the Savior was and failing to point God's people to God's Savior. Okay, so what do we do with that? I have a few thoughts for us. Number one, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. This is the message of God's people. This message doesn't need to be swept under the rug. It doesn't need to be hidden. It doesn't need to be obscured. This is the message of God's people. Our hope, our forgiveness, our welcome, our calling as his children, our promises of life beyond this world, our our promise that all suffering here and now will be overcome with the glory that lies ahead. All of that comes through Christ, So, that sounds good, preacher. So, we speak of Jesus. We point to Jesus. We follow Jesus. We do what he says. We go with him where he goes. He is the door. Second, We have to be careful that we don't become so sophisticated in our arguing or in our presentation that we obscure Christ who is the message. Third, and this is where this sermon goes from amen, that's good to oh. But I think we got to go to, we have to fight against introducing subtle replacements of Jesus into our message and our labors. The purpose of the gospel is not to build Redeemer Church and acclimate people to this congregation. The purpose of the gospel is to invite people to Christ. And then invite them to baptism. And then invite them to the body of Christ. And hopefully this would be a warm, welcoming, discipling place for them. But you can have Redeemer all day long and miss Jesus. The work of the gospel is not inviting people to celebrate and promote southern evangelical values. The work of the gospel is not merely Inviting people to celebrate and promote Southern evangelical values. I quite frankly think our world could use a little more yes sir and yes ma'am. I think our world could use a little more chivalry and a little more opening and closing of doors. And a little more care and concern for others. And a little more sweet tea and a little more pecan pie. And a little more, as my uncle Bubba would say, the way the old folks used to do it. But that's not the gospel. And no one's gonna be redeemed by that. And no one's gonna walk into eternity with sweet tea and pecan pie greasing the wheels for them. And I probably shouldn't be funny right here because this one's heavy. So if you have good Southern evangelical values, thank you. But that's not the gospel. Another subtle replacement to be careful of is the elevation of political figures or political parties or political agendas. If you care about who you vote for, let's talk. I have opinions too. But American politics is not the gospel. Fourth, Subtle replacement. The future of America is not the future of the kingdom of God. Look, I love our country. I say this every week. I'll go to the Veterans Day parade with you. I'll buy the tickets. But the message of Jesus is not the future of America. The message of Jesus is is the future of a king who will live forever because he's defeated sin and death. And he's building a, na- he's building a kingdom of every language, tribe, nation, and tongue. Now, I don't want to get too crazy, but put all your other pet issues up there. The perfect way to parent an infant. The perfect way to parent a toddler. The perfect way to parent a teenager the perfect way to parent your adult child. That one's killing us right now. But those aren't the gospel. And so here's what that means. If you're in a small group with somebody who has an infant just like you, discipleship doesn't mean getting them to do what you do. Discipleship means getting both of you to long for the help of Christ and both of you willing to submit to the wisdom of the scripture in deciding what you do. Does that distinction make sense? Mm. Finally, what Jesus is really saying to these scribes and Pharisees is to learn to separate what I want from what Jesus requires. To learn to separate what I want from what Jesus requires. Now, here's some good news. The more sanctified our hearts become, the more what we want and what Jesus requires will come together. That's what he promises. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean delight yourself in the Lord and you get what you want. It means delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you a heart that desires what he desires. But a real hard work for us is to learn to separate what I want from what Jesus requires. And understand that the work of the gospel and the work of the church and the work of the kingdom and the work of Christ is to pursue pursue him and what he requires. Even if it's not what we would most desire in the moment. So friends, this is our hope. Jesus Christ gives life. Jesus Christ overcomes all of our sin and all of our inconsistency and all of our failure to purely pursue the gospel. But the posture of a Christian is to say, I stand with Christ in all things. Spirit of God, help me. Because Jesus is where there is forgiveness of sin and hope and life and help and peace. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would take these words from your scripture, these words from Christ, and as much as what's been said this morning is true and good, would you cause us to hear it and believe it? Lord, we, we plead with you and we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.